0: It's May 5th, 2019, and this is episode 396 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Hey, folks, I'm Adam B. Levine, and on today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, I'm here with Stephanie Murphy. Hi. Jonathan Mohan. Hey, hey. And Andreas Antonopoulos. Hello. So today we're going to be discussing a couple of topics. We'll kick things off with a technical topic, at least a little bit technical, on recently launched for developers, Loop Out for Lightning. And then later, we'll dip our toes into the latest fork of a fork controversy with lawsuits, delistings, and other allegations, along with lots of drama, to see if anything sticks. Thanks to all the hosts and to you listeners for sitting in on today's discussion. So, Lightning. Well, it's been a long time coming, I'm honestly getting a little bit excited about it at this point. Technology's always been really promising, but there are all of these little details, which might be insignificant in the big picture, but which matter a lot for usability, especially usability for people like me, and really for the usefulness of the system. Which brings me to a new improvement in Lightning called Loopout, specifically, is what we're going to be talking about today. I'm going to read a little bit from the blog.lightning.engineering blog from their post on this uh, in a section entitled Loopout, a Tale of Lightning Pizza. Quote, One day, a new company launches that's selling pizza on the Lightning Network called Backgammon's. And it turns out that they're selling lots of pizza. But over time, the capacity of Backgammon's channels get filled with the Bitcoin they've received on Lightning, at which point they're unable to accept more payments. Backgammon can then use Loop Out to move funds out of Lightning and into a Bitcoin wallet, cold storage, or fiat currency via an exchange. This emptying of the channel allows them to then receive more payments and continue the cycle of selling pizza and looping out again. Further, when a merchant like Backgammon first joins the Lightning Network, they can use LoopOut to get initial receiving capacity as well. As a result, new recipients on the network no longer need to rely on others to open a channel for them before they're able to start receiving payments. So capacity has kind of always been an issue within uh, the Lightning Network, right? It's been one of the big question marks is that Unlike with Bitcoin, you can't necessarily send your entire balance in a single transaction. You have to instead kind of utilize the network in order to route from hop to hop. And each of those different hops might have different capacity limits. This is clearly kind of trying to tackle that. Andreas, can you kind of help us understand a little better what's going on here?
1: The fundamental issue to understand here is not so much capacity. It's rather that lightning channels are asymmetric, meaning that When you have a channel, there is a local balance and a remote balance. The local balance is the balance of satoshis you have on your side of the channel. And that's the amount that you can send out from that channel, either when you're routing or making a payment yourself. And the remote balance is the balance that can be sent to you that the other party holds on a channel that can be sent to you. And that sets the limit on how much incoming payments you can have. Now imagine you're running a store, as in this example, and you have a bunch of incoming channels with balance on the remote end, and you need that so that people can send you payments or route payments to you. And let's say your store is successful, and so people make payments, and some of that remote balance becomes local balance and moves to your side of the channel, which means you've earned it. Great, so your local balance is increased. If that keeps happening, eventually you're going to run out of remote balance. All of the channel capacity is going to be on your end because you've already received all of it. Now, you have two options. One is to have other people create new channels or close channels and reopen channels. So the problem is rebalancing. Channel rebalancing is the idea here. And the way to solve that is effectively an atomic swap between on-chain and off-chain funds, which is called a submarine swap. And that type of swap is what LoopOut or LoopIn implements.
0: So LoopOut is built on top of the technology that we were talking about a couple of weeks ago called submarine sends. And so this is another layer effectively built on top of that framework.
1: Yeah. So here's a simple example. I've got all of the balance on my end of the channel, and I want to rebalance without closing and opening channels and incurring on-chain payments. So what I do is I need to find someone who's willing to take a Lightning payment from me and in return send me Bitcoin. Essentially swapping an off-chain payment for an on-chain payment. And that's what Lightning Labs will do for you through this service loop out. Now, I could simply trust someone. Kind of like an exchange, right, where I make a deposit through Lightning and they then allow me to make a withdrawal on-chain and make an on-blockchain withdrawal. But the problem with that is trust, right? Because if I simply send them the Lightning payment and then they don't give me an on-chain Bitcoin payment in return, I've lost my money. It's their custody.
0: Okay. So when we're talking about finding that person who's going to provide the other side of the payment, is that something where loop out is a mechanism that we both use together to coordinate the fact that we want to trade, but don't trust each other? Or when I use loop out, am I actually using it with lightning? For example, is there a company in the background that's going to be, you know, providing this sort of liquidity via loop out?
1: Yeah, so LoopOut is a product offered by a single company that provides these trustless submarine swaps so you can swap on-chain for off-chain and vice versa. It is an implementation of submarine swaps, which is effectively a protocol, which is a series of steps you take if you want to do a trustless swap between on-chain and off-chain funds. And that has been implemented in a product that's called LoopOut or Lightning Loop.
0: So LoopOut is a product by a specific company that uses the protocol that his submarine sends.
1: And, and other people can use this same kind of concept of atomic swaps between chains and off-chain funds to do the same thing. Now, the trick here is that it's trustless. And what does that mean? That means that instead of you blindly sending a payment over Lightning and hoping they give you an on-chain payment in return, what happens instead is they make an on-chain payment which is effectively an escrow that can only be unlocked by the invoice receipt of a lightning payment. Meaning once they've put that on chain, you can only claim it if you can show a receipt from your lightning payment. And that means that you don't have to trust them because you see the money escrowed there and they don't have to trust you because you can't redeem it on chain until you have the receipt from your lightning payment. So that way those two things happen atomically, which is why we call them atomic swaps. So either both things happen, lightning payment and on-chain payment, or neither happens, and nobody's you know worse for
0: the situation. So from the outside looking in on this, I actually didn't realize that it was a company. And I actually didn't realize that this wasn't uh, kind of another service or protocol layer. And looking at the blog posts, it doesn't make it that apparent. Are there other technologies out there or things that we might think are technologies within Lightning that you're aware of Andreas, which are actually products built using the protocol, perhaps as a first example, but really they're fundamentally different than additional protocol layers?
1: Well, I mean, all of these are implementations of specific protocol layers, but there's a number of uh, companies doing similar things. So, for example, Bitfury has a number of products that they've built to support the use of Lightning that allow you, for example, to buy inbound capacity on on Lightning channels. So you send them a a small payment and they open a, a channel with balance inbound so that you can receive payments. It's basically kind of facilitating the growth of the Lightning network and solving some of the difficulties that a Lightning node operator might have and delivering that as a service, which has a brand name. I don't remember what the specific brand name of that product is, but essentially these are all just implementations of, of protocol features.
0: So the difference between something like this versus something like, you know, straight Bitcoin wallets is that the features are very much more in development here. So what we're seeing is different companies focus on different particular features or, or things that they think are most interesting and most useful. And we're seeing first implementations of those come out. But as time goes on, it seems likely we'll see other implementations of these things come out that use the same underlying things and maybe even do the same stuff under different brand names. And that's, that's a model that's really well supported by the way Lightning is being built, it seems.
1: Yeah, and already I think there there are a couple of other demonstration implementations of these submarine sends or atomic swaps between on-chain and off-chain funds. In practice, what it means is if you have a store and you have inbound capacity, and people buy a lot of things from your store, and all of that inbound capacity turns into outbound capacity, becomes, it comes to your side of the channel so you can't receive any more payments, you do a loopout and what you do with that loop out is you move that capacity that's on your side to the other side of a payment channel you have with the company that's providing the loopout service and they give you a bitcoin payment in return now that that capacity is on the other side of a channel people can use it to send you payments again and so they start moving that capacity over to your side again by making payments and then when you've got all of it on your side you make another loopout payment and it moves to the other side again, and then you can start receiving payments again. So the idea being here that you can leave a Lightning channel open forever, and eventually you have to route payments in the opposite direction in order to rebalance that channel. And this gives you an opportunity to route payments in the opposite direction while taking a payment on-chain to balance it. So that gives you a very nice way of maintaining a store with inbound capacity that sells a lot without having to constantly find ways to create more inbound capacity
2: so I understand the sender and receiver in a payment channel doing this. How does this affect relays? like how does looping in and out affect the funds that they have i I don't even know what I'm asking. I just like I know that there are, there are three types yeah. of payment channels. one of them is a relay. And how does looping in or looping out affect that relay? And does that squirrel about with anything?
1: Well, if you think about it, if you're routing payments through your nodes, uh, that means you're receiving inbound payments on one channel and sending the same amount or slight, you know, one Satoshi less if you're charging a fee as an outbound payment on another channel. So if you're simply routing then for every inbound payment you're getting on one channel, you're making an outbound payment on the other channel. Therefore, you're you're not increasing your local balance because they they cancel out. In one end, out the other, the local balance remains more or less the same, or it increases very slowly as you accumulate tiny, tiny fees. That's not a problem as long as you don't keep doing it on the same two channels. If you keep doing it on the same two channels in the same direction, eventually... They're going to become unbalanced. So the channel you're receiving inbound payments will not have any more capacity to send you inbound payments, and the channel you're sending out bound payments will not have any more capacity to send out bound payments. At that point, you can route in the opposite direction. So if you route through your nodes, but you use the channel that moved all the balance to the other side for inbound payments, and then use the other channel for outbound payments, then you can start flowing in the opposite direction and rebalance those two channels. If you can't rebalance the two channels by changing the routing direction, one way to rebalance them would be to do a loop out.
0: So there's also a related technology called loop in, which basically is the same type of mechanism, but from the opposite direction.
1: Yeah, I don't think they've implemented loop in yet, but the loop in concept is very similar. What you do is... You make a payment on-chain to a Bitcoin address, and in return, they send you a Lightning payment through the Lightning network of the same amount. And that puts more balance on your end of the channel so you can route out.
2: See, this is why I love uh, Bitcoin developers, because when they create a new type of uh, smart contract, they first figure out how to get money out of the contract before... (laughs) They figure out a way to put money in the contract, which seems to be very smart procedurally when you're trying to put a lot of money into a smart contract.
0: Smart (laughs) contracts are hard.
2: Something to be learned from (laughs) that, I, I think. Yeah.
1: Essentially, this just gives us a broader range of tools for managing capacity. And effectively, I think in the long term, what we're going to see is these are going to be implemented as automatic features which are driven by APIs. So your node will contact a loop out provider, perhaps even negotiate the lowest fee for doing this kind of submarine swap to rebalance channels and finding one provider and executing one automatically when it needs to rebalance. This is not something that in the long run is going to be done by node operators. It's going to be done by the node software
2: itself. Right. So when you say service, is this, this is something that's automated? Is there an actual counterparty? Like, am I using the company to do this on my behalf? So this is sort of like a watchtowery service.
1: Yes, it is. Okay. And there are many, many different services that can be provided to Lightning node operators to increase liquidity capacity or rebalance channels without incurring fewer on-chain fees. Mm -hmm. And the bottom line is that all of these services can be essentially programmatically accessed where the way I envision it's in the future is you have a directory of providers that provide this service. Your nodes can discover who provides it for what cost and then select one based on some criteria, how much it costs to do or how well their privacy policies work or whatever else you want to do. And so these will become automated services that are part of the Lightning Network.
0: So it's been a little while since we've talked about Bitcoin SV. Bitcoin SV, the fork of Bitcoin cash, which previously was a fork of Bitcoin, of course. Bitcoin SV has the noted distinction of containing Craig Wright within its community. And there was enough drama this week that it made it onto my list to actually talk about just because, man, I don't understand what's going on with that protocol. And yet I see some of the hardest core people who were in Bitcoin years ago have sort of collected themselves there and seem to be believe very firmly in it. So today, I just wanted to kind of talk about the craziness that appears to be going on over there and just the latest batch of it. Well,
1: I can give you a technical analysis. So uh, one of the key innovations here is that this new blockchain runs on a proof-of-drama consensus algorithm. And what it requires is every 10 minutes, a lawsuit is filed in order to progress the chain. And that way... The actual checkpoint mechanism, the hash of each block, is published in the core records as part of each lawsuit. That's not actually how it works, but it would be funny if it was.
0: It would be funny if that was how it worked. It might be a little bit more productive. So the long and the short of it is that, you know, since the emergence of Craig Wright years ago, the claim has been that he is Satoshi. Uh, a number of people, including podcaster Peter McCormick, who's also on the LTB network, Um, have gotten somewhat vocal recently about calling him out on that. And as a result, lawsuits have started to fly.
1: Let's make this distinction, because I've seen this throughout all of the media coverage. They've said they've received legal notice. They have not received legal notice. What they've received is threatening letters from lawyers. There is a vast gulf, a vast difference between a threatening letter from a lawyer, which is almost always accompanies the more grandiose in its claims, the more likely it is to be vexatious and unsupportable in an actual lawsuit. But there hasn't been, as far as I know, an actual lawsuit service of uh, uh, process or anything like that yet. There have been a lot of threats. People are receiving letters from lawyers and those letters have no weight in law. You know, they have no impact Very importantly, they don't require a response. Some people have responded to these and then made additional claims, which of course can and will be used against them in the defamation, which is a very bad idea. And instead, those do not deserve a response. What they are is a demonstration that the person who sent them can pay lawyers expensive enough to make accusations on paper. That's all it is.
0: I always kind of enjoy when uh, people who have a lot of money... You know, start to fight and start to spend all that money fighting each other. That's like, I think that's one of the few good uses of lawyers is to really kind of drain some of that money out of
2: that system. It's an entire sub component of the Bitcoin community that I've just not really, you know, dipped my toe into just because there's so much other stuff to try to be productive with. But it just keeps coming back to the least Satoshi way that Satoshi would validate himself would be litigiously it would be through some sort of signing of a proof or a moving of a transaction or a propagation of a something
1: well that that requires actually having private keys which may be a lot harder than than the burden of proof of uh, affording expensive lawyers which is a much easier one to meet
2: right one starts wrapping their head or, or banging their head on the wall when it's like you know there's, there's a very Satoshi way to do this, and I'm pretty darn confident that of everything he thought through, holding on to the ability to sign something that could validate who he was would be something he may do. Or if he made the choice to not do that, that was his desire to never be able to validate that he was who he was, which is a choice as well. It seems very out of alignment with who we think that person to be. Such that if the claim that Craig Wright is Satoshi is valid, then I'm not necessarily sure how much of that statement I would want to believe is true. Or even like be like, oh, you are Satoshi. Great. The desires or interest I had in your opinion on the basis of the way that I now see how you act is not one that I'm going to take with merit in how I decide how Bitcoin should evolve moving forward.
0: Right. It would be bad for the Satoshi persona, not good for the Craig Wright identity, right? Like the definitive connection of those two things together, it seems like at this point, would just be the end of the Satoshi legacy as something where people outside of that particular community think that this is a really important, you know, foundational point. I, I think based on its behavior.
2: Yeah. It's sort of when it comes to Satoshi, it's like the, the god of the gaps where wherever there's no information about the person, you can project into it characteristics that you appreciate and then the more specifics you have the less you can play around with the type of person you'd want them to be versus what they are i'm just saying that the the persona of satoshi with the gaps in there that we've all projected into has a level of sway and value in what we believe that opinion to be because of that integrity in action and if a person ends up being that who doesn't manifest that then even if it is true that they are satoshi i wouldn't people
3: would lose faith.
2: It's like, hey, that guy has a butthole like everyone else. <laughs> like, like.
3: Yeah.
1: So, exactly. Like, let's accept the simple fact that the Venn diagram of genius and the Venn diagram of asshole can have a very big overlap in the middle. And that's okay, right? Someone can be an, a genius and a supreme asshole at the same time. And that's the difference between appealing to the authority and credibility of a person as a whole versus respecting the work they've done in
2: one narrow field. Not everyone is Madonna or you two. Like most artists are geniuses for like two or three years, and then they crash and burn and never achieve their greatness again. Um, And some freaks of nature last for 30 or 40 years. And maybe if Craig Wright is Satoshi, that, you know, he had a few good years. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think there's very little evidence, and I'm not going to make any statements that, that land me in lawsuits, but there's very little evidence of uh, the association between Craig Wright and Satoshi. A lot of the evidence that has been presented by Craig Wright has been debunked by extensive studies by other people who've looked at the details of things like PGP timestamps and signatures and emails and documents where there are significant inconsistencies that point to the possibility that things have been changed within the PGP signatures. And if you make a statement about the facts of the matter here, you'll end up with a defamation lawsuit. And what that demonstrates is nothing about the truth. What it demonstrates is the situation of defamation law in the UK, which is the jurisdiction of choice of Craig Wright, which is the jurisdiction of choice of anyone who wants to engage in vexatious defamation lawsuits because it's the kind of place where you can harass people for speaking about you. You can't do that in the U.S. And I think it's important that in all of this, we look at the differences in these two legal systems and see why this is happening in the U.K. right now.
2: Well, you know, on that note, it's kind of funny to me because there's so much division in this space that when something can bring people together, it's, it's a really nice feeling. I haven't done the count in a while, but I have about 20 first cousins and someone's always fighting with someone. And on the rare occasion when we can all come together, you get that warm, fuzzy feeling inside. And, uh, when Craig Wright said he would sue anyone making statements of fact about his ability to be Satoshi or not, Roger Veer put out a, uh, 20 second video explicitly calling, in his words, uh, Craig Wright a fraud and requested that Craig Wright sue him. And then Matt Carallo tweeted out that if anyone needs an expert testimony to testify to the fact that in his words, Craig Wright is a fraud, that he would be more than happy to fly to london and and submit himself to to inquiry so i think that in any situations where bitcoin's involved if you have a moment where matt corallo and roger veer can team up (laughs) (laughs) it's it's sort of like your two cousins that haven't been speaking for five years uh coming and just having a good time and grabbing a beer with one another and it just sort of gives me the warm, warm fuzzies that maybe we all actually are on the same boat
0: It's time for another Sponsor Minute with Matt from Purse.io, the easiest way to spend your Bitcoin and save 15% or more on Amazon. So Matt, outside of Purse's normal business, what projects are you guys most excited about? Thanks, Adam. Yeah, actually, half our team is dedicated to contributing to open source and cryptocurrency
2: communities. We maintain Bitcoin, Bcash, and Handshake projects. Bitcoin and Bcash are alternative implementations of the Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash protocols written in Node.js.
0: They have an amazing enterprise-level wallet system built to scale up for hundreds of thousands
2: of accounts and addresses and comes with a robust multi-sig wallet application, similar to Copay, but a lot safer, in my opinion. Handshake is a new blockchain project set to
0: launch later this year, designed to decentralize the global DNS system and certificate authority. Handshake will launch with an immense airdrop to hundreds of thousands of open source contributors on the internet. To start saving today, visit purse.io or see the links in the show notes. Thanks, Matt.
3: Thanks, Adam. So can we talk about the delistings and sort of some of the fallout from this? Because there's kind of an interesting story here. So in response to some of the threats of litigious action, there have been some exchanges that have chosen to delist Bitcoin SV that were previously had Bitcoin SV on the exchange. And one of the ones that's getting the most attention is Binance. And the CEO was tweeting something like, I'm uh, cleaning it up a little bit. There's some more profanity in there, but enough of this crap, any more of this behavior, and we're going to delist Bitcoin SV. And, you know, some people were kind of complaining and saying, oh, you know, this is sort of arbitrary and it seems retaliatory. Uh, It seems like an emotionally based decision, right? It's like a... You know, this person doesn't like the way someone else is acting on Twitter. And so then they're going to delist the coin from the exchange. Isn't this kind of like a punishment? Does that set a scary precedent?
2: Censorship. Right. (laughs) And of course, it's not censorship. How dare a private company freely associate with people? My free
3: speech. Right. Then that's the other argument on the other side is right. Like a private company, like an exchange can choose to do whatever they want for whatever reason they want. They're not bound by the government constitution that, you know, is supposed to ensure free speech. Like this is a totally different thing from censorship. This is not actually censorship.
1: It's the exact opposite. It is this company exercising its right to free speech and free association, which they have, right? So if you go for the opposite idea that companies should be, in this case, be forced to engage with coins or blockchains they don't want to and list them mandatorily, that would be a violation of their rights for free association. And oh my God, think of how many more coins we'd have. But I mean, this is the ridiculous knee-jerk reaction you get from, I don't know what to call it, like non-libertarians posing as libertarians who who don't understand the basics of free speech, free association, and free markets.
3: Well, you know, just to play devil's advocate here, like, does it actually kind of set a scary precedent a little bit? Because it's essentially delisting a coin in exchange to a mob uprising. And there seemed to be a lot of people in the industry who were just jumping on board with this. I mean, is that... Is that scary at all? Is that th- that exchanges can arbitrarily kind of delist a coin just because they don't like the people involved?
1: Absolutely, it's scary. It, what it does is it demonstrates the centralization and the uh, centralization of power and the impact that can have of custodial exchanges. It's nothing new here. It's that if you have points of centralization, those points of centralization can be coerced by government but they can also be coerced by mob sentiment and popular reactions and conventional wisdom and things like that and you know if you're cheering this delisting now and calling the exchanges your heroes give it a second wait 6 months a year and watch the same exchanges refuse to adopt let's say a privacy positive soft fork in bitcoin because they're being pressured to do kyc and they're not going to be your friends anymore right you can't like pick and choose principles
2: yeah it also is worth noting how many ways does someone need to do business with you that you're entitled to so satoshi made bitcoin binance had three versions of bitcoin listed on their exchange and they decided that they wanted to delist one of those three products. So even if Satoshi created Bitcoin and there are three Bitcoin and there are three different products, they're just deciding one of those three products they don't want to use anymore.
1: What? Why are you complaining? You're still 66% listed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, I think Stephanie's point is really important here. Yes, on the one side, it's not censorship and we're going to hear all of these like screams of censorship as always uh and i'm very much against censorship but uh, private forums have the right to choose who they associate with and what we should be talking about is not censorship but centralization and the dangers of centralization whether we like what they're doing or not in this particular instance is that it puts the entire community and industry at the mercy of these organizations, and that creates very corrupting, powerful influence.
2: Right, and and everyone likes to think that it's it's like bad debt, where if you get a bunch of you know C and D debt, you p- package it all together, it's triple A. When it comes to decentralization, that yeah, we have all these centralized agencies, but we have fifty of them. So when you package them all together, we kind of approach a a pseudo A level decentralization, not realizing. That just like with CDOs, the systemic risk is all uh, tied to the same risk. So Binance delisting BSV. All the other people piled on. It wasn't as if they were 30 siloed risks. You know, what's the probability of all 30 of them delisting at the same time? It's the fact patterns that got one to delist immediately followed through on all of them. So it's like mortgages where it's decentralization isn't a composite of a bunch of centralized things. Like You don't get to take a bunch of junk bonds and then call it a good bond. That doesn't work. And just as we see with Twitter and Facebook and the social media, that people like to think of these as 20 different or 10 different distinct companies, the moment that the climate changes where one wants to delist, they all deplatform that with these centralized institutions, it's, it's the same risk. And the fact that so many of them delist at the same period should make people realize just how precarious centralized actors are and just how co-tied they are when it comes to what people think federated means when it comes to decentralization or not.
1: The other thing which comes up, obviously, is that this immediately becomes about the character or goodness of the things that just got deplatformed, that most recently got deplatformed, rather than the power and control of the people making the choices to platform or deplatform things, right? and we've seen this with deplatforming and social media, Everybody's like, yeah, but he's a Nazi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but they're pornographers, right? So it's like, it's okay when you think that the reasons that people are exercising this very, very arbitrary power on this very, very centralized platform kind of align with your principles, you're like, well, I'm not going to shed any tears when the Nazi gets deplatformed or whatever. But the truth is that, the criteria are completely arbitrary and they will use the same power to go after the people whose principles you agree with. So when it comes to deplatforming for example, by the time they came for the Nazis, they've been doing 10 years of deplatforming sex workers and LGBTQ people and all of the other kind of powerless minorities before they get to hate speech. In fact, they had a cozy cozy relationship with a lot of Nazis for a very long time. And that was part of the argument that was made back in in the days when we saw this kind of thing start with Operation Chokepoint, et cetera.
3: Oh, and remember when uh, I remember hearing this argument a lot when uh, Bitcoin got this big bump in popularity because of WikiLeaks, where WikiLeaks had their PayPal account shut down and credit card processors cutting them off. And uh, this is what got them into Bitcoin and people were saying, wow, PayPal shut down WikiLeaks's donation account, but they're not shutting down this one that goes to like a KKK group or something.
1: Yes, I remember that. I made that argument myself. They were yeah. at the time you could make PayPal donations. They've, they've fixed that since, but by the time they came for Wikileaks, they'd been going after all of these other people through Operation Chokepoint for a decade, right? The point I'm trying to make is a whole bunch of people cheered on this decision and were #hashtag delistBSV and and gleeful about that choice. Now let's look at the facts. First of all, what are the coins that Binance has not delisted that under the same criteria they probably should? Right? If we take them at face value, and what they're saying is that, that this doesn't have kind of the characteristics of a legitimate system or or its leadership is suspect or whatever else they're using as justification for this, I can give them a whole list of other coins that they currently list that, that under the same criteria they should have delisted, right? So they're not applying these things based on some kind of principle. No one is, right? The hypocrisy and self-serving on every side here is obvious and glaring.
3: Well, I guess you could say Kraken did something a little bit different. They took a Twitter poll of their users or something, (laughs) and they said, who thinks we should delist Bitcoin SV? So they counted pitchforks.
1: Yeah, right. (laughs) They responded to the mob pressure, but only after they carefully counted pitchforks. I mean, come on. What did they expect that poll to come out as? In fact, I think that's more cowardly.
3: What I'm curious about is how much did this cost these exchanges, right? Like, I assume they had Bitcoin SV listed because they were making some kind of profit or they were benefiting from it in some way, right? They wouldn't have listed it in the first place.
2: Were they? Because remember, this was a fork. So these exchanges consented to having Bitcoin Cash on their exchange after Bitcoin Cash forced themselves to have it. So these whole hard forks, we consent to have Bitcoin. Someone goes out and makes a new Bitcoin, and now there's this whole other asset that I didn't agree to on my exchange that I have liabilities against that I have to give to my clients. Now they did it again.
1: And there are lawsuits pending at the moment regarding those liabilities. So if it don't list them, they face the risk of lawsuits. If they do list them, then they have to carry... All of the maintenance costs and all of the troubleshooting costs as these change diverge and all of the technical burden forever.
2: It's just there was a very weird way that this went about getting on an exchange, which was you have it now deal with it, not I would like you to take this.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's true, but I still think if the exchanges really didn't want to like fully take on these forks, what they could have done is just not put it up as a trading pair, right? They could have just like hold on to whoever has a balance in their exchange.
2: That's true. But, you know, once you have the sunk cost of doing all of the work to just be able to give it to your clients, you might as well try to generate a modicum of revenue to get that sunk cost back.
1: That's a good point. That's a very good point, Jonathan. But because the cost of of supporting the chain enough to do withdrawals is already 98% of the work. And all of your income is going to come from trading fees. So that's a really interesting point. I hadn't thought of that.
2: What they said was, without your consent, without your agreement, we're going to give you tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars of consumer liability of exposure against your exchange. And now in order to get rid of that liability, you're now forced to spend half a million or a million in exchange backend integration just to be able to offset this liability that I gave you which ends up being 98% of the work needed to list it on my exchange so that you could then hope to maybe generate enough volume on it to then get recoup the sunk cost on it.
1: Yeah, and you know I think in both cases with these forks, there wasn't enough notice to be able to kind of reduce that liability a bit by saying, okay, all customers, you have one week to withdraw any balance you have. Otherwise, when the fork happens, you won't get the other side. There wasn't enough time to do that. And so the exchanges basically had this dropped in their lap. But to the point I, I made before, I think at least Binance, what they did was they said, this is, you know, uh, CZ, Changpensow said, this is my decision. We're delisting it. And he he took flack for that. And maybe you don't agree or you do agree with the decision, whatever. But he took that decision. It's funny because just, Jesse Powell from Kraken is usually quite outspoken and, and direct and in this particular case he went to a, a much more cowardly route which was let's do a poll i have no responsibility let's ask the mob what the mob thinks
3: <laughs> well yeah no i'm just thinking about the cost or the maybe it was actually better move from a financial perspective to dump this right and then let's not forget the cost of sort of the cost of energy associated with being kind of sucked <laughs> into dealing with the community that's that could be considered draining or some people say toxic or whatever.
0: The toll of drama.
3: Right. I mean, that does cost energy. Like there is some real cost there.
0: Oh, enormous. (laughs) Seriously. So there's one other thing that sort of emerges to me about this conversation, which is that, you know, you're right. We are talking about censorship a lot of times when we're talking about how people perceive these actions to be taken. And this seems to run counter to the idea that cryptocurrency is uncensorable. And I think it might be worth having just a little conversation about the difference between uncensorable versus currently uncensored. Cryptocurrencies and blockchains at the base blockchain layer are, at least in theory,
1: uncensorable. Uh, Censorship resistant is a much better term to use there because they're not uncensorable. They're censorship resistant under certain conditions.
3: Yeah. And exchanges are not exactly one of those conditions. They never were. Exactly. Exactly. Well, but that's my, that's my point.
0: That's my point is that if I'm just using, if I'm just sending a transaction from myself to anybody else, whether it be myself or an exchange, I mean, I suppose the miners could choose not to mine that. But if I have followed the protocol, paid the fees, then that is at least as far as I can tell, what I would consider an uncensorable transaction, right? There's no third party that can look in on this and say, we're not going to allow that.
1: As long as 51% of the miners are acting honestly in order to earn reward according to consensus, yes, that's the main constraint. That's the condition under which the network remains censorship resistant.
0: Okay, so given those things, if I send a transaction to an exchange, That transaction, again, unless the entire network has sort of turned against me, is going to get through, even if the exchange doesn't want it. What the exchange has a choice about is what they do with it once they have it and how they treat it within their particular system. So just because something is very difficult or very censorship-resistant at the base transaction layer, well, once you put it into one of these third parties, it no longer has those characteristics for you. It might have those characteristics for the exchange because they're now the ones holding them. But you're basically at the mercy of that exchange because they can choose to censor, as they did in this case. So Bitcoin SV might be censorship-resistant or might be censorship-proof you know, in theory, at the base level. But once you put it into one of these exchanges or really any other third party, then all those characteristics no longer matter as far as your interaction is concerned.
1: Because it's not money on the blockchain anymore. It's money in a custodial account. Not your keys,
0: not your coins. Uh, I think that there's a perception, at least with some people, that the idea that cryptocurrency is uncensorable or censorship resistant has implications once you go into these other places. Therefore, you're not allowed to censor it. But that's the difference is that with the censorship-resistant base layer, you can't censor it except under these very specific conditions, whereas in the exchange scenario, they aren't currently censoring it and might say that they won't, but there's nothing actually procedural or uh, systemic or protocol level that prevents them from doing that. It's all based on their continued decision-making process.
1: I think the, the other fundamental misunderstanding is the use of the word censorship to describe private action on a private forum, which to me is is nonsensical. Censorship is is when the state uses its powers to stop someone from speaking, not when private individuals decide what speech they want or don't want on their own platform or within their own property. You don't have the right of free speech on somebody else's property. They can simply ask you to leave and take punitive measures towards you because of your speech. Censorship is about the use of state power. And here's the incredible irony. Delisting BSV by private actors, this state platforming, it's not without concern. And certainly there are some very big dangers there. But what it isn't is censorship. On the other hand... Using state power in the form of a court system, a lawsuit, in order to stop someone from making claims about whether you are or aren't Satoshi, that is, in fact, censorship. That is using the state to prevent speech. And using the UK libel laws, which are much, much harder, is a very direct act of censorship in this particular case.
0: So before we recorded this segment, before we recorded this episode, we were kind of talking about that and whether or not just talking about this had the potential to open us up to liability. Andreas, you were telling me a little bit about uh, how liability for this sort of thing works in the UK versus the US system.
1: Yeah, so it's important to realize that there's a vast difference between the UK and the US system. The UK system is almost entirely backwards from what the US system is. So first of all, in the US, If you want to bring a claim of defamation, you have to show, especially if the person is a public person, there was an element of actual malice, meaning that the the defamatory speech was intended to cause damage to that person. In the UK, the common law standard is liability. That means that if you say something that is not factually correct, even without malice, by accident, you're mistaken about the facts, you are liable because you caused damage. So that's one thing. The second difference is that in the U.S. and the U.K., truth is an affirmative defense, meaning that if you can demonstrate that the statements are true, if the court is persuaded that the statements are true, then that's a valid defense for a claim of defamation. But the burden is completely different. In the U.S., the burden is on the plaintiff to prove that the statements were factually untrue. In the UK, the defendant of the the defamation lawsuit must prove that the statements are true in the court, and they cannot use the discovery process or anything submitted as part of the defamation lawsuit to make that proof. So they can't say, okay, you sued me for defamation. I'm now going to ask you to present all of these emails from these dates to help me prove that what I was saying was, in fact, true. You can't do that. In a U.S. court, you can, which is why it has such a strong Streisand effect, which is why people don't get into defamation lawsuits in the U.S., because they're going to be subject to discovery, and they have the burden to show that the statements that were made against them were untrue. Uh, and they can inadvertently help the defendant in the process of discovery. And finally, another basic difference is that in the U.S., we have... At a state level, a fantastic mechanism called a slap suit s l a p p and this is in many states in fact today uh, what's called a strategic lawsuit against public participation or slap. If someone sues you for defamation and you can demonstrate that they are a public person, the information that you published is in the public interest, and the purpose of the defamation lawsuit is to suppress speech that is in the public interest, meaning that it's a strategic lawsuit to prevent public participation and debate on this issue, they will summarily dismiss the defamation claim in the state courts and award you court costs, so your legal fees. So you can basically slap back on a defamation lawsuit, get it dismissed quickly, and get it dismissed prejudiciously, so they can't file it again, and they have to pay your legal costs. That's a fantastic mechanism for free speech. Nothing like that exists in the UK. In fact, in the UK, the entire purpose of defamation law seems to me to be in order to help very rich people do strategic lawsuits against public participation.
0: So to simplify this, in the US he would actually have to prove that he is Satoshi in order to effectively win that argument. Whereas in the UK, the person who is being sued has to prove that he's not Satoshi in order to not lose, right?
1: That's correct. And so every time you hear our president, for example, say, we've got to fix the libel laws and it's going to be huge. <laughs> what they're basically saying is, I would like to have the same ability as they do in the UK to use money, power, and influence to prevent the public discussion of my failings. The strategic lawsuits against public participation should be able to proceed and work. And that will never happen in the U.S. And the reason it will never happen is because the First Amendment prohibits it very, very clearly. And all of the legal... It would require major changes to, to constitutional law and precedent. But the U.K. doesn't have that. So... If you get sued, by the way, so first of all, if you receive a legal letter from the lawyers, don't respond. What the hell are you doing? Why would you give them more material? Don't respond. You have no obligation to respond to a legal letter from a UK lawyer, or any lawyer for that matter. Two, you have no requirement for confidentiality, right? So if somebody sends you an unsolicited letter and you haven't engaged in any confidentiality with them... Great. Publish it immediately. You want to get the, the Streisand effect going as quickly as possible. If someone sends you a threatening letter and you don't have a confidentiality agreement, I'm not a lawyer, but I'm, I'm just telling you what I would do in my case based on my experience. Publish that letter immediately and do not respond. Why give them extra ammunition? They haven't sued you until they've sued you. Uh, and by the way, don't publish your address at the top of the letter. Redact that shit. I've seen a couple of the threatening letters and people are publishing their home addresses. It's like the, that's bad opsec in any case.
0: So with all of this in mind, we went way longer on this segment than was my intention. And I think that moving forward, we're going to respect the chilling effect put in place by some of these legal threats out there. And we probably aren't going to talk about uh, Craig Wright again. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Head over to ltbshow.com to drop us a tip and a message or buy one of our extremely comfortable, very affordable, and highly stylish LTB t-shirts featuring our favorite quotes. Content for today's show was for by Stephanie Murphy, Andreas M. Antonopoulos, Jonathan Mohan, and Adam B. Levine. Today's episode was edited by Dave, Crystal, and Adam, with music by Jared Rubens. Any questions or comments, email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. Have a good one.